Hi everyone and welcome to episode 41 of the FFS show, our podcast about misinformation and fact checking. I am your host, uh, Aoi Bryan, and with me, a sort of becoming a semi-regular, would you say co-host? Um, my colleague, Paul Dobson. How are you doing, Paul? I'm not bad. Yeah, I think I'm becoming like a supporting character, part of the FFS show Extended Universe, I think, now. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So you're going you're gonna to go for a sort of spin-off, unsuccessful yeah. spin-off uh, franchise. Yeah. I, th- yeah, I we'll think you see. could carry it. This one's floundering with me. We need, we need some new blood injected into it need like a tv series or something like that yeah disney plus will surely surely commission sure, surely come in for that yeah. god's sake particularly with all of the fact checking and political turmoil that's been going on over the last few weeks since we were last on air i think there's been six prime ministers uh four elections and two uh, leadership elections so things are moving at a, quite a pace liz truss is gone when we record this on Tuesday the 25th and replaced by Rishi Sunak. Do you have any non-partisan views on that, Paul, that you'd like to share? No, I just thought it was interesting that you sort of said she was gone as of 25th of October in case she was coming back in a week or so, which I That's true, yeah. unlikely. Well, <laughs> I mean, un- unlikely political comebacks are not off the cards, but yeah. That said, long odds, I suspect, on Liz Truss being back in power tomorrow. Yeah. No, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, she might need a bit of a spell on the, the subs bench before she's allowed, allowed back. But we actually have a fact check to talk about regarding Liz Truss and her descent from power, which is to do with a alleged fund she could get uh, after becoming prime minister. So we'll talk about that uh, in just a sec. But we also have a great interview this week. I interviewed a researcher called Talene Ashikian, who is a researcher at Simon Fraser University in uh, British Columbia, Canada. And she's done some excellent, uh, interesting work about the rise of Dr. Google, inverted commas, or the risk of self-diagnosing your symptoms online and getting it wrong, basically. There's a term called cyberchondria, which some people might have heard of, which is, um, yeah, basically where you diagnose yourself uh, inaccurately as something worse than your symptoms actually are because you've looked on the NHS website or you've looked on some less reputable websites and found uh, yourself uh, a sort of terrifying diagnosis when actually it's something a bit more mundane. Um, I think this is something that we all do, isn't it, Paul, to be honest? Yeah, we were discussing off air and I think, yeah, definitely guilty of it myself. So it'll be interesting to hear what she's got to say about it, definitely. Yeah, and this is something that's absolutely exploded during the COVID-19 pandemic, as you can imagine, when people were quite literally being told different symptoms on a you know almost weekly basis. So yeah, really interesting chat and one that uh, I'm looking forward to you all hearing. But first, shall we get into our topical fact check? Let's go for it. So Ali, what was the claim about Truss's allowance and where did you first see it? Well, in the uh, immediate aftermath of uh, Liz Truss announcing she was stepping aside, uh, which was last Thursday, uh, I believe. Uh, This is how fast things are moving at this point. Um, There were like a number of claims online which were going around on socials from various different accounts um, that she would be due an annual allowance for the rest of her life of £115,000. 
Okay, and is that true then? Is she entitled to that amount of money? And if so, what can she use it for? It is true, straightforwardly. Um, but there are some things that I think are quite interesting about the truth behind it, essentially. So what a lot of people were saying online, uh, there was a lot of different claims that were kind of going wrong around it. We're talking about it is like a pension or as a payment or as various things. It's not a pension. There is a pension scheme for MPs. Prime Minister is part of. There's not a special Prime Minister pension scheme. And obviously that kicks in once you stop being an MP. But this is an allowance which is called the Public Duty Costs Allowance or PDCA. And this is especially for Prime Ministers, essentially. It's a special payment scheme that was set up uh, in 1991 after Thatcher left office uh, to, quote, assist former Prime Ministers still active in public life. So... Essentially, what it's meant for is to help out people who have, who were prime ministers, who then supposedly have higher costs to cover for office costs, for security, for uh, staffing, for social media platforms, for all the sort of things that are required or they claim are required to kind of maintain the office of an ex-prime minister. Every ex-prime minister is entitled to this until their dying day, even though Liz Truss was only in charged for about six weeks still technically entitled to up to the full amount but it's not the case that she just gets it handed to her which i think is kind of what some people were saying it's basically like an expenses allowance so the top allowance you can get is 115,000 a year but you do have to provide like your receipts and your expenses forms in order to claim it so have previous prime ministers claimed that and i take it that means that she can't just use it to pay for her shopping or anything like that yeah, well, I'd hope not. Every current living former prime minister has claimed it, as well as, interestingly, Nick Clegg, who wasn't a former prime minister, but uh, through some quirk of the unprecedented coalition where he was a deputy prime minister, but I think he made the point that he had extra duties and extra profile that maybe a, another, a normal deputy prime minister wouldn't have. He's also allowed to claim this fund. So in recent years, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, John Major, they've all claimed very significantly on the public duty cost allowance. So John Major claimed the full allowance in 2019-20. So did Tony Blair. Gordon Brown claimed £198 less than the allowance. Frugal. David Cameron claimed about £3,500 less than the allowance. So these people are claiming it. And I imagine it would be expected that Liz Truss would claim it as well. Okay. So just to take this on a slightly different trajectory, obviously, because mm. there's been so much going on in the news as you as you sort of alluded to earlier. Yeah. How do you pick a fact check in that climate when things are moving so fast? Because obviously part of mm. the, the value of fact checking is that, that it's reactive, but also you need to be comprehensive and get your facts right. So how do you choose the right fact check um, in those scenarios? That is a really good question. I think there's there's no like one answer to that because... As you say, with in a situation where things are moving so fast and developing at such a pace, I mean, you know, all this has basically taken place in the last week. So you can't fact check every little thing that comes up and every even every big thing that comes up because there's so many things that are happening and also things that are happening that then become almost moot after a while. So, you know, for example, it's only on Sunday that Boris Johnson was claiming he had over 100 backers. That was disputed by other people. But then by now... That's not really particularly important because he's withdrew or didn't announce, depending on how you view it. <laughs> and uh, Rishi Sunak is now prime minister. So I think primarily the thing that we, we look at when we're looking for a fact check is how much it's been shared. 
so how much it's being it's part of the conversation how many people are talking about it and how much is there potential that people might be misled by it and this claim was just everywhere very very quickly and i think we were one of the first people to get out a fact check about it other other fact checkers did look at it when you're fact checking it's a real balance because you can't just chuck stuff out really quickly we have to be kind of comprehensive and also we have to get our work right so you can't just fire in <laughs> you know with like 10 minutes work and be like okay this sounds about right a lot of the claims we check are because people have done that so there is a sort of balance where you're having to do quite a lot of quite specific and careful work but at a pace but it's really difficult and i think one of the problems we have and this is something that comes up time and time for fact checkers is that it's a lot easier to just stick something out that's wrong and get loads of uh, retweets or loads of shares or whatever compared to having to actually do the work to check it Now it's time for my interview with health researcher Talene Ashikian, who's done some interesting research about the dangers of Googling your own symptoms. My name is Talene. I am a PhD student, health sciences researcher at Simon Fraser University, and my expertise is in virtual care. So... The article that I was drawn to that made us get in touch with you to talk about was the rise of Dr. Google. Could you just explain to our listeners what exactly is Dr. Google? How I would personally explain the Dr. Google concept to listeners is someone who is unsure of a symptom they may be feeling, whether it be physically, mentally, or emotionally. So they resort to Google to find answers, and those answers may be a call to action, diagnosis, treatment, overall making Google a doctor. This is something that I think everybody has probably done at some point. What would you describe as the main dangers of this sort of self-diagnosis? The dangers of self-diagnosing online are endless, from self-misdiagnosing yourself, which can be as serious as failing to detect a seizure, a heart attack, tumor, etc., to not seeking treatment or seeking the wrong treatment. This can include, you know, ineffectively taking or mixing medications. You can become overly confident with your self-diagnosis that you begin to be resistant to a different diagnosis from a certified healthcare professional. Your bank account can be at danger if you're spending all your money on different treatments or medicines that may not be necessary to begin with. And you may not even be fully aware because your mind is so set on finding a solution. Obviously, in the situation we have been in in the recent years with the COVID-19 lockdowns across the world, um, and obviously COVID-19, the, the, the illness, um, people have, in a way that people have been forced into using Google and using online, using, using virtual online healthcare um, for, for diagnosis. I mean, there was obviously there was talk of different symptoms and every week at the start of the pandemic, it seemed to be like a different symptom came out um, that you had to be aware of, or that was something that you would be a potential signifier of COVID-19. So is this whole thing being massively accelerated by the, the pandemic? During COVID-19, the world was basically on pause. Many doctors not in office, clinics Mm. closed. Some doctors may have taken a leave. 
restricted capacity in waiting rooms. So many people willingly or unwillingly resorted to virtual care or Dr. Google. So it was definitely something that, you know, sometimes you don't have a choice and you're put, in, put into a situation. And that's what um, most people rear towards. So what sort of impact did that have on people in terms of diagnosing themselves? You know, I can't speak on, you know, on behalf of everyone, but, you know, there has been some people that may have had distrust in the, in the medical professionals during COVID-19 because, you know, it, it, as you said, like there was many symptoms every day coming out. And, mm. but you know, I can't speak on behalf of that because there are many gaps and questions that are unknown. Was this distrust present before COVID-19 due to past experiences? And did the pandemic just highlight that distrust more? Yeah. And obviously people, when they're getting their information, when they're able to get their information online, they're able to, well, they're not reliant on just going to a doctor and getting a diagnosis. They have the ability to to themselves sort of make a judgment of what their symptoms actually relate to most definitely yes for sure one of the things that i think comes out of this and it's a term that i heard quite a while ago but it's uh the idea of cyberchondria yes correct first firstly could you just explain what that term means yeah so cyberchondria is essentially someone who is experiencing a high amount of health anxiety from searching mm. symptoms on the internet is that a common phenomenon? Has is that grown? Do we know do we know about cyberchondria as a phenomenon and how it's grown? You know, as for how common it is, this could definitely vary from country to country. I don't have exact stats, but I have no doubt that for as long as the internet exists and technology continues to advance, it will likely only become more and more common. But it's definitely a timely timely thing that's happening right now. In a way, is it inevitable? That that's going to happen given the nature of the fact that people are able to do this and are able to, to sort of diagnose themselves it is an inevitable so first and foremost it's important to acknowledge and accept that you know we cannot stop people from misdiagnosing themselves we can help to control it what we can do is control what could be a detrimental outcome by educating them on finding credible sources or realism towards a certified healthcare professional will provide a diagnosis virtually one of the problems that we've experienced during COVID is that credible websites in the UK, it be the NHS, obviously in the US, there's a CDC, there's the World Health Organization, there's all these different credible organizations who give out such information, but some people have tended to like trust that less. Mm -hmm. Is that a problem with virtual care in, in general, or is that just a consequence of the various misinformation swirls that have, are kind of containing the world at the moment? Yeah, I, I think it is. A little bit of both. I think that, you know, to understand the the core root of the distrust, there's a lot of factors to it. Like I said, you know, was this distrust present before COVID-19? Is this something, did someone experience or have a poor past experience with a healthcare professional, mm. leading them not to believe anything that they read now? Or are they just resorting to Dr. Google? So it's, it's there's many factors to it. And I think it's, it's it's almost like layered in a way, but in today's society, it's hard to determine exactly why. It's a, it's a bit of a crazy uh, situation that we're in right now. During COVID and obviously in the post-lockdown time we're in now is, well, so everyone, everything was forced online during COVID-19. And so people were forced into online appointments or telephone appointments, etc. But now 
in a post-COVID situation, there's mass, still massive strain on healthcare. So, I mean, in the UK, there's a huge problem with people getting appointments with their uh, general practitioners, GPs, or even getting on waiting lists to be seen for whatever is wrong with them. If people aren't seeing people in person, does that lead to a breakdown in the rapport between the doctor and the patient? And then, consequently, the trust in the doctor? Most definitely. Most definitely. It's face-to-face interaction is crucial to build rapport with a patient, between patient, physician, any healthcare professional. And when that is diminished or eliminated, it becomes a difficult process. But to say that it's not possible is also wrong too, because many, many healthcare professionals have built rapport solely virtually and have, have succeeded in it. So to, like I said, like something that we can't, it's inevitable, we can't control people on whether they do choose to go that route or not. Yes, it was kind of forced upon us during the pandemic. And, you know, unwillingly or willingly, um, that's just what happened during that time. And I think that when we understand that we cannot really stop it, and at the end of the day, people are going to do what they want, and technology is going to continue to advance and it's still going to be used. You know, given, given as we say, that there's the, the inevitability of people um, researching their symptoms online, particularly when healthcare services are stretched or, you know, they feel like potentially they don't have immediately the answer to the question, you know, the question they have about their healthcare. What would you say to them and what would you advise them and advise people on to sort of stay safe in that regard? Filtering out all that information on Google is just, like I said, it's an overwhelming process. So understanding how to find credible sources to see if what you're reading is peer reviewed, looking into the author's background, understanding where the information is coming from. That's all we've got time for for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Talene for her uh, explanation and uh, research into the issue of Dr. Google and cyberchondria. I think definitely something that we all have experience of and a sort of interesting look at the kind of misinformation side of things as well. I think the point she makes as well is that there is no going back to an extent like every uh, it's good you know information is available online and people's health anxieties are going to be affected by that so i suppose we just have to be as careful as possible in the information we get yeah i think so absolutely and yeah try when you've got too much time in your hands not to to sit constantly on google yeah don't dwell on it your sore head (laughs) yeah 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 yeah, exactly yeah you want to go to the doctors not like the doctor google if you can So is there anything we need to talk about? Yes. First of all, we need to give a huge thank you to listeners, uh, readers, viewers of uh, The Ferret and uh, Greater Govan Hill for your incredible generosity in backing our crowdfunder. Many of you, if you listen to this podcast, you follow The Ferret, will know we've been crowdfunding to help us sort of kit out our new community media hub in Govan Hill in Glasgow, which is joint with Greater Govan Hill magazine. And our supporters have furnished us with £3,370, which is an astonishing amount, which will help us to create this community hub. Yeah, uh, really exciting news and great to have so much support for that, particularly because it only ran for a couple of weeks. Um, And Ali and I are both very excited that we're going to have comfortable chairs to sit in, hopefully. Yeah, that will be good. So yeah, thanks so much for backing that and uh, keep your eyes peeled uh, for 
some of the work that we're doing uh, related to health inequalities, which is going to come out of that hub, both literally and metaphorically, which should come up in the next few months. So remember, if you want to get in contact with us, the email address, fatcheckattheferret.scot, that goes directly to me. And you can go to our community forum, which the address is, Paul? Community.theferret.scot. We will see you, or you will hear us next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.